I appreciate so much the way we've been led in worship this week, our singing, those who have led us in prayer. appreciate the visitors who have come each time, and thank you especially for your presence tonight. This week our theme has been, Today is the Day. Paul did not express it exactly like that in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, but it's very similar. And the idea is there is to be an urgency in the Christian's heart and mind in terms of our living life and applying the Word of God and looking to a time when we will see Christ again as He comes to redeem His own and how we will stand before Him in judgment to give an answer of those things that we have done in the body. Tonight we want to talk about another matter of urgency regarding our Christian lives when we think about today as the day. And that is the idea that today is the day we must reach out to those who are prodigal in their lives. Today we talk about, tonight we talk about the day the prodigal came home. We've talked about this week about the day that sin entered into this world and the day that accountability came before the eyes of man. The day that redemption was promised and then came to be affected in what Jesus did on Calvary for us. And then last night, how God has provided for us a place of safety and protection. One of the most regrettable things that happens in the life of any congregation is that day, if there indeed is a day, when someone who has been a child of God makes the decision, either consciously or unconsciously, to walk away from God. To make their Christian life a part of their past instead of it being a part of their present. This is not according to the will of God at all. The Bible tells us in Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus does, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And once that person is saved, God wants that person to stay saved. In John chapter 6 and verse 39, the Bible says, Jesus says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. In John 17 and verse 12, in those final hours of his life when Jesus prayed in front of his disciples, he told his father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I've kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. God is not a loser. God does not like losing any more than we do. And so when God tells us about that in Luke chapter 15, He has a definitive message for us in these three beautiful parables. And we all know the term parabolain means to cast down beside something else for a sake of comparison. And so God tells us about His attitude, His heart, His mind, His love for the lost and, and how that has affected Him in terms of of those who turn away from Him and walk away from Him. And in doing this in Luke chapter 15, Jesus has some very powerful words to say about the lost son. As a matter of fact, if we begin reading in the first two verses of the chapter, we'll see why Jesus taught these parables. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Him to hear Him. Jesus seemed to attract those whom the rest of the world had thrown away. 
And the Pharisees and scribes, who were often his greatest nemeses, complained, grumbled, murmured, the Greek word is here, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. If you ate with someone in the, in the ancient Eastern world, that was a sign of approval. It was your stamp of endorsement with that person. It was a statement in your own mind, in your life, that you had fellowship with them and, and that you considered yourself in a connected relationship. And so when these complain about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they were implying, these are your people. These are the people you're having fellowship with and thereby you are violating the will of God by doing this because no faithful Jew would associate with these people because of the things that they do in their lives. And so Jesus teaches three such beautiful parables. The first one, the parable of the lost sheep. In this, in that parable, Jesus teaches us how God feels about losing that which is His because of the fact of His investing because of investment in the one who is lost. He says if a man has a hundred sheep, he loses one. Does, does He leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and he, he goes and finds that one. He puts it on his shoulders and he brings it home and he rejoices. The shepherd knew his flock as his investment. It was his livelihood. It's how he existed, how he, how he sustained himself in terms of what brought him that livelihood. And so when Jesus talked about this shepherd losing this sheep and how he would go out and search for that sheep until he found it, every single one of those people who heard that parable understood the premise. But then the second parable had to do with the lost coin, the drachma, the day's wage. And he portrays a woman who has ten coins, but she loses one. And instead of saying, well, I have nine more, this isn't a big deal, It'll turn up somewhere. She sweeps the house diligently. She searches diligently until she finds that which she has lost. And she also rejoices. And then there is, and, and by the way, that second parable, God doesn't want to lose us because to Him, like the drachma, like the coin, we have value. Didn't Jesus say you're of more value than many sparrows? So the second idea, God doesn't want to lose that which has intrinsic value to Him. Just like none of us would want to lose a day's wage, we'd certainly look for it. The third parable is what we want to focus on tonight. In looking at the day that a prodigal came home. Let's read beginning in verse 11 together, the entirety of the chapter, and then make some points from that that illustrate how God feels about the prodigal and how we should feel. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Taste usayas. The stuff. The goods. So he divided to them his livelihood, which is a different word, bios or bios, from which we get the word biology, life. To one, it was his goods. To the father, it was his livelihood. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, 
The younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted. This is why we call him the prodigal. Wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Or riotous living, as the King James says. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. He began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he gladly would have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my hired or father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Exactly what he had rehearsed is what he said. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to make merry. And by the way, if you ever teach someone who believes that it's impossible for a Christian to be lost, take them to verse 24. That one verse refutes the idea. The one who was a son became lost and dead to his father. They began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound. In other words, because there's now peace and reconciliation. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, and the Greek word there literally means look which was a disrespectful way for, in this parable, this older son to address his father. Lo, or look, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. There's the phrase. And was lost and is found. Four questions I want us to examine tonight, and I hope the PowerPoint will work. Before we look at those questions, this painting by Rembrandt, which is probably one of his most famous depicts three characters, the father, the prodigal son, and the older one that we've just read about. And Rembrandt's use of light highlights each one because they are the main characters in this part of the account. First of all tonight, the PowerPoint doesn't seem to want to work with me, guys. Maybe it will. First of all tonight, what led 
the prodigal to leave home. There was a time in his life in the parable where it is assumed that he would have made a decision. I'm tired of being here. I'm tired of being in this atmosphere. Don't know what it was, but something led him to leave home. And in his leaving home, those who are hearing this parable would have understood that the fact that he demanded this part of his inheritance, one-third of the three just one-third, not half, but one-third, he demanded it, would have been an act of supreme disrespect and dishonor to his father and to his father's family and to the village in which they lived. We are told in Ephesians chapter 6 to honor our father and mother. That doesn't stop when we turn 18 years old. We honor our father and mother as long as we live. It's the only commandment, the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. He dishonored his father. He dishonored his family. He dishonored the village. As a matter of fact, when someone did go away like this in a disobedient prodigal fashion, there was a funeral held after their departure. That was a part of Jewish tradition. There was a funeral held because... In their minds, there had been what was equivalent to a death. It seems that what led him away from his father, as much as anything else, was selfishness. He wanted the taste of sias. He wanted the stuff. He wanted the goods, he said, that fell to him. Even though it was his father's livelihood, he wanted it. And he wanted it out of turn. As you know, the oldest usually got the inheritance, the first part. And he, he got it first when the father died. Think about it, friends. What he's saying to his daddy is this. I don't care whether you live or die. I want your stuff. And I don't so much care about you. I want your stuff. I want what I would get if you died. And so in making this statement, in making this gesture... He's not planning to take the livelihood and go invest it and make more out of it. He goes and blows it and spends it. His brother would later say, on harlots, on riotous or prodigal living. What made him leave home? Rebellion. What made him leave home? Selfishness. What made him leave home? A total lack of honor and regard for his father, for his family, for their honor, for their place in their local village. And when he got into this far country, things happened. Things that he didn't foresee. He wasted what he got from his father. He wasted it. So much so that he joined himself. The Bible says in Luke chapter 15 and verse 15, the word there in the Greek is kalao. It literally means he glued himself to someone else who sent him into his fields to feed swine, which as a Jewish boy, a Jewish young man would have made him unclean. He would not have been fit to go home because of his experience in feeding the swine. And so much so did this severe famine that came, so much so did it affect him that he became so hungry. The Bible says that he would have filled his belly with the pods, the keration, that the swine ate. This is the fruit of the carob tree. You see the picture on the screen behind me. It literally means horn because that's what it looks like. 
It's a pod that, that closely resembles a small horn, and they were commonly used for, for fattening up swine to take them to slaughter, or feeding donkeys or horses, or in some cases were eaten for food, but only by the very, very poor. This son, who had been a part of a household where there was sustenance, where there was wealth, where there was at least some sort of affluence, was now in a position to be in fellowship with the swine and to desire what they had. My mother was given by my grandfather when she married my father, straight out of the Marine Corps, a little house over in Alabama where she grew up. And just outside the back of that house was an outhouse that my grandfather and my grandmother shared with my mother. And yes, I've experienced what that outhouse was all about when I was a boy. Along with the well, which was not far from it. But next to the outhouse was a pig pen. And they just kept one hog. They'd have him there, they'd slaughter him, and they'd get another one. But here you have an outhouse and a hog pen together. Thinking back on it, I can just imagine what it would have been if this parable were true to life. For that younger son to put himself in that place. Psalm 73 verse 22, the psalmist says, I was so foolish and ignorant, speaking to God. I was like a beast before you. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 15, the way of the unfaithful is hard. When someone becomes a prodigal, and is wasting their life. Really, what a wasted life is, is just a collection of wasted days. That's all it is. But how powerful a waste that is. Paul talked to the church at Corinth and talked about a, a catalog of evil behaviors, which he said at the conclusion of in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, And such were some of you. The people I'm speaking to tonight in this auditorium and via the web, may not be prodigals in the sense of having been a faithful Christian and fallen away, but every single one of us knows what it's like to be in sin, as we talked about last night. What led this prodigal from home? The same thing that would lead someone to carry on a life of disobedience and rebellion to God, and that would be a total disregard for the blessings and opportunities that God has given through Jesus Christ. And I don't know this heartache. Some of you may know it, but I'm telling you, I have seen it in other families that I've ministered to. One of the greatest heartaches that any family can endure is when a child walks away from Christ. When they walk away from the training and the rearing and the spiritual maturation and all the hours that have been invested in them and teaching them the Bible and living godly lives before them. And as, a, as an example, to have that child to pack up all of that and walk away. These precious, beautiful, wonderful children that are such a blessing to you, it, it, it's such an irony. They can be your greatest joy and they can be your greatest heartache. And anyone who's known that kind of heartache has a sense of knowing what it's like to at least in that way feel like God feels when one of his own walks away. Well, what led the prodigal away? The next question, what led him to come home? Which is just 
as powerful a point as the other. Again, we talked about the severe famine that arose in the land. If that had been a real occurrence, perhaps it could have been a providential thing that no one could foresee. You know, we think when we go along a certain path that everything's going to be fine and we sometimes are not able to foresee and, and to anticipate things that happen to us and then they happen and we have to deal with them. My father was born 1920, mother born in 1922. They both went through the Great Depression. My mother said it was so bad over in Alabama in the little mining community in which she lived that if the family pets of any of those people who lived in that same community and usually dogs because they had more meat on the bone, if they survived, it was a wonder. Can't imagine being hungry enough to eat the family pet just to survive. Here this Jewish boy depicted this younger son. He would have eaten these pods he was already unclean from being in that circumstance with the swine, but he would, have, he would have eaten the pods. And so now, the pivotal thing in verse 17, the pivotal thing, what led him to come home, and here it is, mark it down, when he came to himself. When he came to himself. The devil deceives us. The devil blinds our eyes. The Bible talks about that. And if there comes a time when one has been a prodigal and they stop and they realize what they've done to themselves, they realize the hole that they've dug for themselves, and they realize where they are and how low they have sunk, if they come to that prodigal moment, it is a powerful moment in their lives that will sometimes lead them to stand up and say, as he said, what in the world am I doing here? I could be home. My father's hired servants, and, and yes, in a family like his father's, as this parable depicts it, there were hired servants and there were household servants. Hired servants were like day laborers. They didn't live on site with the family. They may have lived in a town or a village nearby, but they came and they did day labor. And they got paid at the end of the day. I remember doing construction work with my father years ago in Atlanta. We would go up in the middle of Atlanta at different times, and there were restaurants on the corners, and there were a bunch of guys who would stand out outside the restaurants in the mornings, and the guys who were doing construction would go by and say, okay, I need three guys to to, to uh, pour concrete today, or I need three guys to, to uh, drive nails and be framers today. And, man, three guys would hop on. And they'd work, and they'd work, and they'd come to the end of the day, and they wanted paid. And you may not see them on the corner the next day. That's what the hired servant, the hired day laborer is all about. And this son says, look, here I am perishing with hunger and my father's hired day laborers, not just the household servants, but the day laborers, they have it better than me. What am I thinking? And so he went home. Because he came to this point in time. Second Timothy chapter 2 beginning in verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And here it is, that they may come to their senses. What did Jesus say in Luke 23 and verse 34? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. For the prodigal to go home, there must be that prodigal moment where that person comes to their senses and they escape the snare of the devil 
as Paul goes on to say, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That moment came for Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9, verses 4 and 5. On the road to Damascus, where Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That was his prodigal moment. In James 5, verses 19 and 20, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and that happens all the time, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 2 that when someone walks away from God who's been a Christian, it's like a dog returning to his vomit and a sow going back to the mire where she was once washed. It doesn't make sense, but it still happens because eyes become blinded. Consciousness becomes blinded and dull to the, to the fact of what we are doing to ourselves. And so we come to that prodigal moment, and hopefully 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, we experience godly sorrow, which produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Brethren, one of the things we need to be doing on a regular basis is praying for the prodigals among us and praying that through His providence and the unfolding of whatever events that God wishes to produce, but also the evangelistic efforts of faithful Christians like those in this auditorium or those watching by stream tonight, because of our efforts that someone might turn from their evil way and come home. So many times they're not going to do it on their own. There has to be an impetus. I hesitate to share this. It's a personal thing. My father was a drunkard until I was 12. He had been a United States Marine and served in combat on Guadalcanal and Peleliu. He and my mother had a daughter before me. They lost her about a year and seven days before I was born, at the age of seven. My father cursed the church. He said some things about it that I can't even repeat in this setting. But we had a deacon. He was not a trained evangelist. He was a faithful Christian who loved the souls of people. And he knew enough about the Bible to be able to teach the plan of salvation. Brother Clyde made mops and brooms. He was not an educated guy, but he knew this word, and he knew the Jewel Miller film strips, and he knew how to use them together. And, man, he came to the house, and he studied, and he studied, and he studied with my dad and my mother and myself and my sister. And he didn't give up because, you see, he himself had been a drunkard. He himself had come from a life of alcoholism and obeyed the gospel because of his wife, who also taught him. And he kept teaching and kept teaching and kept teaching Sometimes he would come to the house and teach, and my father would be so drunk, his head would almost be on the table. And we didn't think it was doing any good. But Brother Clyde just kept coming. And then one day, my father had been gone for about two weeks. We didn't know where he was, didn't know if he was alive. He was probably drunk somewhere. But in playing out in the street, I could see him coming. Not in his truck. Didn't know where that was. He was walking. And usually when he came home, he was violent. He would threaten my mother. I've seen him almost try to choke her to death at times. You see that as a two and three and four and five year old child. 
When he got to the house that day, my mother told my sister and myself, go over and sit on the couch and be quiet. When he got to the house that day, he wasn't drunk. Instead of cursing my mother and demanding money, he got on his knees and crawled across the living room, wrapped his arms around her legs and begged her to forgive him for all of the abuse that he had heaped upon her. He did the same thing with me and my sister. And then he turned to my mother and he said, Call Brother Brother Clyde, I want to go to the building and I want to become a Christian. And he never took another drink. As a matter of fact, the night he died, he'd worked for ten hours and spent the last several hours of his life cleaning that same church building that he used to curse. What could bring someone back from being that far gone? The power of this word sown in his heart. It made him want to leave his life of disobedience and rebellion to God. And thanks be unto God that he did. When the prodigal comes home, it's important for us to talk about next what he found in his father. The text tells us that when he arose and came to his father, verse 20, His father saw him when he was still a great way off. And the Bible says he had compassion. The Bible says he ran. He ran. The word for run here in the Greek is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 2, Galatians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, and Hebrews 12 for someone who's sprinting. Someone who's sprinting in a race. So it wasn't just a trot. He's sprinting. And let me say, in the Middle East, in that region of the world, it was the most undignified, shameful thing that that any adult, particularly the patriarch in a family, and particularly someone who was of some age, it was the most undignified, shameful thing for him to do, to try to run. First of all, he would have have to have lifted up his robe, his, his makbut, And in doing that, he would have shamed himself because he would have showed part of his leg in trying to run. But he's not concerned about that. He's concerned about getting to his boy. He's concerned because of his compassion about running to his boy. And he fell on his neck, the text says. He embraced him. This boy's been unclean. He's been around the hogs. But that doesn't matter to his father, just like those Ephesian elders fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. He fell on his son's neck. He embraced him. And the Bible says he kissed him here. And the word in the Greek is katafelesin. And it literally means that he kissed him over and over and over and over again. That same phrase and the same idea you find in Luke chapter 7, when the woman who was a sinner... When she came into the Pharisee's house with that alabaster box of ointment and she anointed Jesus with it, the Bible says she continued to kiss his feet. And Jesus said to the host of the house, said, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. What rejoicing there was on the part of this father. He threw away the convention of the day. He threw away what someone else may think of him, his image, his reputation. Because there was only one thing at that point that mattered, and it was that his son had come home. 
Oh, and He showered him with love and acceptance and compassion and all of the things that every prodigal should receive from the family that he left. And how precious a scene that is. Friends, the most important thing, going back to Second Peter 2 and, and this account of these parables, particularly this one, the most important thing that the church needs to be involved in is not youth rallies or lock-ins or blood drives or, or fielding softball teams, but rather in reclaiming the prodigal. While there is time... And showing those that return to Christ. Showing them the same love and acceptance and compassion that this father showed to his son. And to make the most of the time in doing that because, as 2 Peter 3.15 says, the long-suffering of the Lord. Account that long-suffering as salvation. Every day, every day that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, God is saying to us, I've given you one more day. Not only have I given the prodigal one more day to repent, I have given my faithful children one more day to reach out and try to win them back. And again, that love, that atmosphere of acceptance and forgiveness, it must be palpable, it must be detectable, it must be so evident. I have a friend that preaches down in Georgia. And when he was a young preacher... There was someone who responded to the invitation who'd been an unfaithful Christian. And he'd been working with this person so much, so strongly, so hard. And he finally got them to respond. But they didn't come down front. They gave him a letter to read to the congregation. And they were present. He was present on that day. And they had a prayer for him. And he was restored to the fellowship of Christ on that day and to the Lord's body. He was the prodigal come home. And there was rejoicing. As there should be, as there was in this circumstance. But he said one of his elders, after the service was over, took him aside and rebuked him. And said, don't you ever receive a prodigal in that way ever again. And my friend, he couldn't understand it. He said, well, why? Why wouldn't we receive him? Why wouldn't we read his statement? Why wouldn't we pray for him and love him and wrap our arms around him? Why wouldn't we do that? He says, we can do all of those things, but we need to make him come down front because we need to shame him. I don't see that in Luke 15. I don't see the father browbeating the son saying, you failure, you prodigal, you profligate. You've been out there with, with the whores and the harlots and you've been feeding the pigs and you've been leading a life that we don't respect and, and you're going to have to prove yourself. Don't see that. What brought this boy home was what he found in his father. But then, of course, the next lesson, which is just as profound, is what he found in his brother. And that's exactly the reason why Jesus... Is teaching this lesson. Because you see, the Bible says, the parable says, that when this brother, when he hears what's going on, he comes and asks, you know, what's happening? And he's told, you know, your brother's come home, your father's killed the fatted calf, which would feed two or three hundred. And instead of rejoicing, instead of rushing in the house and welcoming his brother home, he's angry, he's jealous. He's envious. And he tells his father later on, you gave him the fatted calf. You've never even given me a goat that 
I can celebrate with my friends and I have been faithful to you. Let me say this to you tonight, beloved. One of the reasons why some prodigals don't come home is because of us. Is because of how we would receive them and, and the, the roadblocks that we would put in their way to becoming faithful again. In the book of Genesis, chapters 42 through 45, when Joseph met his brothers again who had sold him, were going to kill him and threw him in that pit and had sold him into Potiphar's house, sold him to the Midianites who gradually, of course, he went into Potiphar's house. He doesn't have bitterness in his heart. He has love for his brothers. He even weeps. He weeps with them and he restrains himself so he wouldn't weep in front of them. And then in chapter 45, he reveals himself to them and he says, I am Joseph, your brother. 45 verse 5. Whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. These ones who leave us and become the prodigal, they are also our brethren. They are dear to God. They are precious in His sight. In John 13, verse 1, in His final days, His final hours, the Bible says of Jesus, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Think about it. He could have been bitter. Jesus could have been better. He could have said to those who were His companions, because of your sin, I'm going to be separated from my Father. I'm going to taste death forever. It's because of you. But He doesn't have bitterness in His heart with His brethren. He loved them to the very end. I myself had an elder one time who was studying with a young couple. And he invited me along for the study and we did the Jewel Miller film strips. And I don't mean, I don't mean to to denigrate him and from just telling you the truth of what happened. And as we studied with this young couple, it was very obvious that, that they didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of physical possessions. As a matter of fact, they had come to us as a benevolent case. And so we had helped them. We were studying with them and trying to teach them the truth and trying to get them to obey the gospel. And the elder stayed with me for the first two or three sessions of Jill Miller. Then, you know, he said, I've got something else to do. You go ahead and carry it on. And so I studied with them through the rest of Jill Miller and through open Bible study and other things and carried that study on for many, many weeks. And finally, finally, they would not let us come again. You know, when we would call, they wouldn't answer the phone. We'd go by. They, they, we, they would be there. We'd knock on the door, but they wouldn't come to the door. And so I finally went back to the elder and I said, well, it looks like, it looks like this is not going to end well because we've made all of these efforts and it looks like, you know, that, that they're just not interested anymore. And I'll never forget his comment. He said, well, they would not have been much of an asset to us anyway. Thanks be unto God that the prodigal met the father before he met the brother. Friends, we will never grieve over the lost until we learn to love and cherish our beloved brethren and to genuinely grieve from the depths of our hearts when they walk away from Christ and to make every effort that we possibly can to bring them home. Our brotherhood, in many ways tonight, has hurdles to overcome. In some places, we're divided over race. 
Down in Georgia, I know places that will talk about the black church and the white church. There is no such thing in either case. We're divided over the vaccine, over this past election and politics that surround it. In some ways, we're detached from one another because of the streaming that we use as a tool. But it's become a divisive thing in some ways. And this social distancing has become spiritual distancing. We have a lot of hurdles to overcome. And we will never reach out to prodigals. We'll never reach out to those who have gone into the far country if we don't love them with all of our heart. And grieve because of what they've done. There are two unfaithful sons in this account. One of them left home. One of them didn't. Finally tonight, what the prodigal found among the angels. What the prodigal found among the angels, and that's just simply rejoicing. Jesus said it. That there's rejoicing among the angels in heaven when one sinner, Luke 15:10, repents. There was rejoicing in the heart of the Philippian jailer after he and his household obeyed the gospel, Acts chapter 16, 33 and 34. There was rejoicing in the heart of the eunuch after he departed from the, from the encounter with Philip where he also obeyed the gospel. The day a prodigal comes home, there's joy in heaven. It's joy unspeakable. Because of what Jesus has done to purchase their sins. And you and I need to be those who would rejoice also when those among us who have been unfaithful and been rebellious and been disobedient to God, when they finally come home. Tonight as we sing this invitation song, I wonder if you have been the prodigal. And you're here tonight because you want to come back to the Lord. Have your sins forgiven be restored again to his body and be the faithful son, the faithful daughter, the faithful child once again. Today is the day. Now is the accepted time.